You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why GameBridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. GameBridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hey guys, I am so thrilled for all of you to hear today's episode. I am sitting down with one of my favorite public servants and political activists, and he also happens to be the former foreign policy director for the GOP. There's a lot of people out there who wouldn't think Evan McMullen and I would be friends or be people who reach out to each other to talk about what's going on in the political spectrum, but we are and we do. He also happens to be a former CIA operations officer and is currently the executive director of Stand Up Republic, which serves to protect the United States Constitution. He is fascinating, utterly fascinating, and I'm, I'm just so thrilled to introduce you all to him. Today, we're going to talk about when he knew he wanted to be in the CIA, how he made that happen, what he learned from running for president independently in 2016, the state of our country right now, how we can all defend it, and so much more. Enjoy this. It's special. You have such a, I think in today's climate, Mm. to stand against a system which seems as though logically we should be able to observe it and say, this doesn't fit in any version of our political system, in any version of either party. You've come out as this incredibly dynamic and and strong leader who talks about what's right rather than what side to take. Thank you. Which I'm so grateful for. Thank you. And I want to get into Stand Up Republic and I want to get into your career But I want to go back to the beginning because one of the things I'm always so curious about with people who I think Mm. are fantastic leaders or super interesting experts Mm. is were you, were you, were you like a tiny version of this man when you were a boy? How did you grow up and, Mm. and were you always interested in sort of serious things? Who, who was 
Evan as a child. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. That's a, that's a, first of all, thank you for all this very nice and generous comments. Well, it's true. I mean, and and I should tell people because they're Mm. probably curious how you and I have wound up, you know, sitting across from each other, but we connected on, on Twitter because we're out there trying to spread information about what's happening. You know, the crisis of the constitution we find ourselves in. Yeah. And I thought like, this guy seems really cool. <laughs> and I don't I don't remember which of us messaged each other first, but you've been mm. such a generous resource mm. and, you know, boost of confidence that the world's not going to end, which I really appreciate. <laughs> um, so everybody listening, that's that's how we connected. The internet isn't all bad. Sometimes yeah. you sometimes you find friends in unlikely places. Absent, I I totally agree and I think this moment, there are silver linings to this moment, this Mm -hmm. national moment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of them is finding new friends often across the political spectrum, Mm -hmm. across the political aisle Mm -hmm. that still agree that one plus one equals two and that we're, you know, inherently equal Mm -hmm. and inherently free and that we should have a government that reflects that and that there is goodness in the world and that you know, there is, you know, right and wrong and virtue and these basic ideas mm-hmm. and finding people who, you know, y- y- you know, you may not have spoken too much before because they weren't part of your political tribe or mm-hmm. they lived on the other side of the country or mm-hmm. came from a different walk of life. But now you realize, oh my goodness, we have so much in common, mm-hmm. far more in common than we do in difference. Yes. That's, that's a tremendous silver lining. And I think an important response or part of the response and part of the cure to what ails the country right now. So that happened for us and it's happened for others and, and, and it's an encouraging reality, I think. So, yeah, it yeah. definitely is one of the things that makes me feel hopeful. Yeah. So were you, were you befriending everybody in school? Were you, cause you grew up in a, in a rural area outside Washington. Yeah, right? that's right. Well, outside of Seattle, Seattle, Washington. That's yes. right. So it was, it was a mostly rural area. You know, people had small or modestly sized farms. There were no mm-hmm. ranches in the area per se, really, but you know, people had horses and chickens and mm. sheep and things like that. We had, we had that too. You know, Sir Mix a lot though lived down the street, no so that way. was strange. <laughs> yeah. As in, I like big butts. Yeah, Sir yeah, exactly. He lived like a fourth of, fourth of the mile just down the road, but otherwise it was sort of this like rural. And he had garages for all his cars and all of that, and we'd see him zooming by on the country road past our place all the time. That's so wild. It's so weird, yeah. But aside from that, it was sort of this <laughs> pretty quiet, you know, small rural, mostly rural place Mm -hmm. and uh, about 30 minutes outside of Seattle in Tacoma, if you went the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you know, we, you know, we were a sort of lower middle income family, you know, we never went hungry or anything like that. But at the end of the month, we were sort of out of food and waiting for the paycheck to kid and, Mm -hmm. you know, didn't, you know, didn't turn on the heat in the winter because we couldn't afford that. So we wore winter coats inside and until we got a wood burning stove and, you know, then during the summer, we would spend a lot of time collecting wood chips at, you know, pallet making companies and trucking them home to storing them in our barn so we could burn them during the winter to stay warm. So it was, I mean, other people struggled much more than we did. I don't mean to paint a picture of 
you know, you know, wasn't destitute or anything by any means, but mm-hmm. you know, we struggled financially. There was risk of lo- losing the home a lot. I used to, I was the oldest child. I remember hearing my parents talk about how we might lose our home. Mm-hmm. And I thought in my little kid brain, I thought, well, how do we lose the home? I mean, first of all, it's big enough that it'd be hard to lose. It's right here. Mm-hmm. Or the other side of me wondered, is, does, is someone going to take it from us? How is that possible? How could someone take our home? Um, So there was that sort of heaviness growing up that a lot of people experience tenfold or more Mm -hmm. uh, to what I experienced. But that was part of my upbringing, um, learning how to work really hard. Also, you know, there were some there were formative experiences growing up watching my parents. Uh, I think my first sort of activist roots happened uh, one day when my I was with my father and he was gassing up our Volkswagen van, which is what we drove. It was an old blue and white Volkswagen van. And we were gassing it up and we walked into the convenience store to pay or whatever. And my dad noticed that there were a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of porn magazines right up front on the counter, no cover on them, just sort of right there in front where candy normally is. That's mm-hmm. what was there. And, and as a kid, I was seeing it. And uh, I remember my dad, you know, who was not a wealthy man. He was a young professional with four kids and, and you know, didn't have a lot of influence, you'd think. But I remember him saying to the, to the proprietor there, you know, this stuff needs to be back there and with covers on it. And if it isn't next time I'm here, I won't, I won't be back. So that was his simple, mm. for some, something that he thought was very important. He was worried about my seeing that content as a kid. And I remember I thought, they're not going to do that, Dad. Like, they're not, why would they listen to you? You're a guy with a Volkswagen van who has no influence here. Uh, well, a week or a month later, we were back in that convenience store. And sure enough, all that stuff was back behind the, the register with covers on it. And, and I just, there was a lesson learned as a kid, you know, that, Mm. you know, you could make a difference by simply taking a stand. Mm -hmm. And especially if you were speaking truth or making sense that, you know, even people who are considered weak or less influential by most standards, by wealth, by, you know, whatever it is, education Mm -hmm. uh, can make a difference. And I, I think that, especially in retrospect, that had a massive impact on the way I perceived the world and the difference I could make in it over time. That's amazing. I think anything that equalizes people's voices or right. reminds you that really every voice has merit. Right. Because that idea that some people are more powerful right. than others or, or some people's right. voices matter more. Right. That's a social construct that right. we've built. And, you know, if we look at history as we understand it, Right. Constructs were built by those in power to keep them in power, and in a way, we're fighting a version of that right. currently in our in our country. And it's a special thing when someone shows you that your voice can have merit too. That's right. And you know, I think about yeah, I I wouldn't want you know my eventual son or daughter exposed to unexplained hypersexualized images of men or women. They're right. detrimental to both when you start setting these expectations of that's right. what you're supposed to be. You know, you're taking right. this sort of intimacy and empathy and communication and 
uh, consent out of those conversations with kids and the ramifications right. of those things can be really serious. Right. And I think a lot of people probably would have thought, eh, it is what it is. But I love that even in that moment, your dad was like, does it have to be? Right. I, I don't think it has to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. And, and you know, whatever, you know, whatever the, the issue is, whatever you're acting on, I mean, I'm always a big advocate for people, you know, be an advocate for what you believe in, mm -hmm. participate in the, in the competition of ideas, yes. even, even if, or especially if I don't agree, you know, advocate for what you believe in. That's what makes this country uh, what it is, is that, you know, we have the, the luxury and the freedom to, to have this competition of ideas mm -hmm. and people should be activists for what they care about. And if, mm -hmm. if we all did that, and if we all at the same time, listen to each other, yeah. we're going to be much better off for doing that. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how, and, and writing a little bit about how I think we're in denial as a country mm -hmm. and, you know, denial is, and I, so I did a little bit of reading about denial and, you know, it's, it's a coping mechanism, you know, it, mm -hmm. it in some cases, we need to be in denial to deal with some of the challenges we may face in our personal lives when they hit. Yes. Because if we don't have a little bit of denial in the beginning, we all of a sudden can't function perhaps. Right. And we're then just it's, catatonic. It, right. And then yeah. it's even more dangerous because we're not, we can't even function in our normal lives without a little denial. But eventually, you know, we need to get out of that mm -hmm. stage so that we can take action to, yes. you know, get treatment for our cancer, whatever it is. Yes. And my concern is that we're not getting out of that stage fast enough. And we, we need to get out of that stage and realize what's going on. For example, that, you know, we need to be able to say, you know, clear, in a clear-eyed way, 2016 was not a free and fair election. Mm -hmm. We had foreign interference that, most likely was decisive in the election's outcome. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very, very narrow outcome with the president losing the popular vote mm -hmm. and winning the electoral college by just 70,000 votes in exactly the right places, exactly, by the way, the same places that Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, told the mm -hmm. Russians they should focus. And I would just love to say, for listeners to understand the severity of what you're saying, because most people listening know what I think, and maybe they don't quite know what you think. I hope now they will. But you're saying this to me as the former chief policy director of the House Republican Conference, as a former senior advisor on national security issues for the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, as a former CIA agent. I mean, this is, you have a storied and dedicated career of service to this country. And you speak about these issues as a Republican, as a person who has been a, I would assume, lifelong member of the conservative political party in this country. And, and so I, I just want to reiterate how important it is for us, regardless of what we think, you know, states should be doing with their money. When we really look at the larger umbrella of America, there are just things that no matter what side you sort of sway towards, we we should be agreeing on as fact because they are facts. Yeah, ab absolutely. Hundreds of instances of collusion are facts. Right, exactly. They're just facts. One plus one equals two. That's right. That's right. And you, you know, you're you're right. I, I do consider myself a conservative, although not in the way that it's 
defined at, at this point. Well, I imagine I, you feel like you've lost yeah, whatever your I, party used to be. Yeah, exactly. And, and and just as a point of clarification, I you know I have until 2016, I had only ever supported or donated or volunteered or worked for worked with Republicans. Mm. Uh, I've been a registered independent for as long as I can remember. I still am, mm. but I was a you know a, a senior policy person for uh for the house republicans and and so so yes but um but i i say these things not as you know a representative of any of that as much as i am just an american and that comes first and i and i think it is so important that we recognize and and sort of own what happened in 2016 and it's you know i say these things as somebody who comes from the the right side of the political spectrum Mm -hmm. the conservative side but you know there are a lot of people on the left too who won't say these things because mm-hmm. they feel like oh I'll be you know people will say I'm partisan or I'm you know this is just a partisan response mm-hmm. and that's sort of the you know the baggage of our polarization in this country now what but we mess. can't allow that to prevent us from speaking truth but the reason why it's so important to acknowledge what happened in 2016 is not because we need to relive and relitigate that over and over it's because we need to be prepared for 2020. Yes. And I am very concerned that given that we did not have a fully free and fair election in 2016, mm-hmm. now the chances in 2020 that, that 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 will happen again or that something like it will happen again are much greater, especially mm-hmm. because those who were involved, both the Trump campaign for the most part and Trump himself and the Russians have not been held accountable. Exactly. And so now the incentives are even um, are, are even greater for them to do what they did in mm-hmm. 2016, perhaps in a different way, but because to do they something. they got off scot-free. They got off scot-free. And yeah. by the way, if you're the Russians, you're worried about the Democrats coming to power, taking the White House, because mm-hmm. if you're not, not all Russians- they're coming back- you know, to, to hold you accountable. You, they will hold you accountable because yes. they, they have an incentive to do it. And because they're, you know, they're acting in the interest of the country. And so acting in the interest of the country is an incredibly important thing to take a beat on. That's right. That it, that it is required of any public servant in this country to act in the interests of this country, to protect this country, its citizens, its elections, its democracy, its constitution. And we are losing hold on those things. You wrote a you wrote an op-ed in 2016 about Trump's threat to the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Did you see it getting this bad? Did you know that this is how how bad it was gonna get and how quickly? Yeah, I I did think this was going to happen, which is why you know, why I've been active in the way I have since Mm -hmm. 2016. Absolutely. This is what I thought would happen. The only thing that I didn't, the two things that I didn't fully predict, number one, I didn't think that Trump would so quickly make a concerted systematic attack on truth. I thought that that would happen, but I thought it would happen in as he realized over time that he needed to attack truth in order to remain unaccountable to the people. Mm. But he knew quickly that that's what he needed well, to do. he's done that his entire he's career. He's done that his whole career, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was some naivete, naivete on my part. I also thought that, you know, I, I also, I did think that, for example, Republicans would not stand up to Trump in the way they thought they would. Mm. Uh, they, they thought privately that what would happen is that even if Trump were elected, they would be able to own him rather than him owning them. Mm. 
And I thought, you know, you're fooling yourselves. And that was when I was the policy director for, excuse me, for the House Republicans. And I was part of, you know, these discussions in which that was the idea that we'll, you know, we'll be able to control him. We know more. We've been at this for longer. He's a, he's a newbie. He's, he's a novice to the whole governance thing. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to control him, not vice versa. I thought that was entirely naive. If you couldn't stand up to him, then, then you weren't going to stand up to him as president of the United States. Mm -hmm. But I did think even then there would be some Republicans who would stand up to the president, uh, elected Republicans, I want to mm -hmm. clarify, and now there are virtually none. There, you know, mm -hmm. there there are one or two at times, but there are virtually none. Mm -hmm. And I and so in that case, it's it's worse than I thought. It's a wild thing for me, as, as a person who have been deeply entrenched in the political system for as long as I can remember. I think yeah. because I I've understood that it's part of our civic duty, and maybe that's because my dad is an immigrant, and I remember helping him study for his citizenship test when I was a kid. That's wonderful, and my yeah. mother's mother came through Ellis Island to pursue mm. the American dream. Right. You know, so I'm either a first or a second generation American, yeah. depending on which parent you count. Yeah. And to see as a kid who always idealized the Constitution and who studied journalism and political science in college and and who just really believes in the system here and who loves this country, to see career servants flip to the dark side so quickly, I, I, I'm, I'm so dumbfounded by how intoxicating that proximal power is to people who, like you, I had hoped, naively, mm -hmm. I realized, would stick to what's right mm -hmm. at the sort of fundamental pillar level of the country yeah. and the constitution. And they're all just dropping like flies. Yeah. And it's, it's a wild thing. You know, it's a wild thing to watch a, an attorney for the United States argue that children don't deserve soap and toothbrushes. I saw that. And did you see the, the ship captain who – he was a captive of Somali pirates for a while. I, I, I have to find I, right. his name. And he said, the Somali pirates gave me toothpaste. I saw that too. And yeah. soap. Yeah. Let's, let's just have a real frank yeah. conversation about who we are being yeah, that's right. in the world today. That's right. And it's a it's – a it's just so out there. And this idea that people aren't saying anything so that they can stay in the good graces – of an authoritarian, yeah, I don't even want to say leader. I don't. I don't even know yeah. what the word. You know, a figure. <laughs> figure. It's. It's a really. It's disheartening. Yeah. I'm really inspired by there. There's folks we both follow on Twitter who are doing so much advocacy or attempting to do advocacy, but it's hard to make noise when everything's noisy because everything's insane. Right. But they're doing all of this work around election security and really making public what's going on and how these voting machines state to state are right. changing and they're running on these insecure modems and they're not right. having paper printouts and, and right. they're making it very difficult for us to have records right. for the upcoming election. And now there are these groundswell groups in states advocating that we go back, that we go back to paper ballots, that we go back to hand-marked paper ballots, which are really the only secure way to vote in a, in a culture in which everything digital can, can be hacked. Right. So I'm curious what you think, you know, I know the PAVE Act is is trying to get passed and make sure that we go back to paper ballots. And I'm curious mm -hmm. what you think of that and how we can advocate in nonpartisan ways for secure elections. 
And I'm also curious what you think about ranked choice voting. Yeah, well, I, I'm very passionate about that. You know, look, I, I think paper paper ballots or a paper trail for all votes cast uh, is is absolutely vital. It's a vital mm-hmm. reform we need. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would also say that you know it's possible to have all of that and have sort of the hacking and the manipulation happening on the voter rolls, the voter files. So mm. you show up to vote and you know you're registered to vote. You voted recently. You mm-hmm. know you're registered. You checked before. You know, maybe you checked some months ago. But all of a sudden you're told, oh, no, you can't vote because your address doesn't match the one that's on your voter ID card or mm-hmm. your your driver's license. So you can't vote here. Things like that. So you, it's not even messing with the vote tallies. It's messing with people's ability to actually vote. I mean, we saw it with the Stacey Abrams race in Georgia. That was right. insane. That's right. That's that was right. an insane thing to witness. Just that's that's right. All of those people purged from the rolls. All of those polling places closed. They really were so blatant. That's right. About making sure she wouldn't win because they knew she was going to. And and what accountability is there? And, you know, the the election fraud in, in North Carolina against mm-hmm. um, where, the, where the Republican candidate, Mark Harris, with the knowledge of the state and national party in the general election engaged in, in election fraud and ballot fraud uh, against a Democratic candidate, uh, Dan McCready, who's a, a very good candidate. Yeah. Um, so I lived so, in North Carolina for nine years. I was I was hot under the collar about that. Yeah. Well. Yikes. It's it's you know something that we all need to fight against, no matter mm-hmm. no matter what party we're you know we belong to. This is, look. This is about our ability to choose our own leaders and yes. to hold them accountable. This is yes. this is everything. And and mm-hmm. if if you're you know a member of one party and you think oh well this is going to help us win, so I guess I'll allow it to happen. Well, wake up because it'll happen against you the next time. Yeah. And this is as individuals. I mean, we, you know, our, the, you know, the power of the people has to come first before, you know, yes. the interests of our parties and and our partisan interests. Yeah. On ranked and choice, it's, such a re- it's a relief to have people reminding us that that's true. Yeah, I wish more would. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what we're fighting for. On ranked choice voting, you know, f- for the listeners, I, th- I think many have probably heard of it. Many perhaps have not, but. You know, it's it's simply a way for for us to go into the ballot box, mm-hmm. the voting booth, and to or to go into the voting booth. We don't go into the ballot boxes. So <laughs> no, none of us are that small, and just rank our vote to say who we who we prefer. You know, number one, two, three, four, five, uh, and more fully express our preferences. Yes. and it's you know it's a it's a it's a change to our ballots, but it's one that's supported by most machines now, updated machines and mm-hmm. software. Um, but it just allows voters to fully express their preferences. Yes. But it can have a tremendously positive impact on our country. How? Well, if you and I are, are if we're running against each other, mm-hmm. you know, we are, you know, if voters can say that they like you number one and, and me number two, if that's a possibility, yep. then I'm must, much less likely to sling mud at you. But more importantly, I'm much more likely to find common ground with you yep. to to highlight the areas where we agree. And yes, we disagree on some things and those that differentiation is important. It's a race after all. Mm-hmm. But just as, if not more important, is that common ground. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need in this country. We need to change the incentives for our leaders so that they're encouraged and rewarded 
for finding common ground that does exist, yeah. even with people on far on the other side of the the political spectrum. I mean, I, there was a recent issue. I forgot exactly what it was. I think it was maybe a lobbying issue or something where Ted Cruz, uh, the Republican Senator from Texas found common ground with AOC on, on some issue. And they agreed on Twitter to work together on, on a bill to, to make some reforms. Mm -hmm. If they can find common ground for heaven's sakes. And I, I I believe that there's common ground on even the most divisive issues in our country. The ones that we're all afraid to touch. I, I, I reject that. I think that there's more, the more that unites us than divides us. Mm -hmm. Ranked choice voting, you know, changing that, making that change to our ballots allows us, empowers everyone, allows us to more fully express our preferences, Mm -hmm. but then incentivizes our leaders to reflect that common ground and to build on it. And that's what we need right now. This This partisan polarization is making us ungovernable. We we can't govern ourselves because of it. Foreign adversaries Mm -hmm. are looking at us and saying, these people, these Americans are so divided yeah. that all we have to go in there and it, all we have to do is go in there and stoke that a little bit. Yeah. Well, we're cannibalizing our own. That's right. And the irony is that much like an television entertainment, the more extreme the event, the higher the ratings. So now right. our politicians are behaving like extremists. Right. They're going, oh, well, if I say this outlandish thing, I'll be in the paper for the next three days. That's right. That's not what our politicians are supposed to do. Right. They're supposed to be voices of reason. And to your point, they're supposed to govern for everyone. They're supposed to find right. common ground, work toward common right. good. And, and I think ranked choice voting would be so great for us because it would force them back right. to that we're not getting up from this table until everyone agrees on something. And right. that's what we need. Right. You know, I remember even in the last election hearing, you you know, the adage of like, well, would I want to have a beer with that person? I'm like, right. I don't need to want to have a beer with my president. <laughs> I need the president to be the president. I'll have yeah. beers with my friends. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You, yeah. You, you need for some, some sort of sanity to come back yeah. into this. Right. And you don't get that without changing the incentives. Right. You know, and I wish, you know, to your point earlier, I wish that we could just count on people to just sort of uphold those pillars of democracy that we were talking about before, but we can't just leave that Mm-mm. anymore to to hope. You know, we have to actually change the incentives. We have to incentivize it yeah. because right now the wrong things are incentivized. That's right. And that's why hope for morality or whatever we want to call it isn't right. winning out. That's right. Because bad behavior is rewarded. That's and, right. You know, think about it. It's like, we are raising a nation together. You know, America right. is a child that we're right. all responsible for. Right. A young one. A young one in, mm-hmm. in the history of the world. Right. And you would never leave a kid to its own worst devices. You know, imagine right. if, if you were, you know, you adopt a puppy and mm-hmm. you're meant to train your animal to right. be a member of your family and society and not be a complete psychopath who knocks tables over and steals other people's food. Imagine <laughs> if you only rewarded that dog's bad behavior. Right. Like, good luck. You're going to have a feral animal on your hands. Right. And I kind of, I'm like, oh my God, is America a feral puppy right now? What's happening? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would well, you? We, we've, we've, we've made the incentive such that, that that's yeah. what we're getting. Yeah. So you ran mm-hmm. in 2016 as an independent. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? 
Yeah, I mean, it, well, first of all, it was only, for me. It was only three months. It was sort mm-hmm. of this emergency moonshot campaign to give conservatives who weren't gonna, you know, didn't want to vote for Trump and and weren't gonna vote for a Democrat to vote for someone else and to hopefully convince some people who were thinking about voting for Trump to 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 go another way. Yeah, you know, especially if they weren't gonna. And some people. Some people voted Democrat. They were okay with that, but there were certain Republicans who just weren't going to do that. Yeah. And so, you know, we made a case, I and my campaign, we tried to make a case that that President Trump, now President Trump, was dangerous to the country. That, you know, yes, you've got, you know, we've got differences on policy issues with the Democrats. That's normal. But the president is somebody who genuinely threatens the country. And, you know, I think I say that now and looking back on that, I think people thought that that was sort of a campaign slogan, you know, that, you know, maybe I didn't really mean it. It's Mm -hmm. sort of maybe I meant it like, you know, Marco Rubio meant it when he said the president is a con or or Trump is a con man. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that now Marco Rubio is, you know, a big supporter of the president and campaigning Mm -hmm. for his re-election in 2020. Mm-hmm. That, that's not how I meant it. I actually meant it. I, that was a line I, in the sand for you. Yeah. When I yeah. said, look, the president presents a danger to, or Trump at the time, candidate Trump presents a danger to the country. I really meant it. And I still mean it. It's mm-hmm. not a campaign slogan. I think some people were surprised that when he was elected and I didn't abandon that message, I didn't mm-hmm. change. I didn't fall in line, they sort of thought, what's the matter with you? Because, Values, shocking. <laughs> yeah, right. When you said that, you were just saying that as as a campaign line of attack. I mean, you didn't really meant, mean that. You said it during a campaign. And no, I mean, that's that's yeah. not actually the case. No, I, I said, said it because I meant I it. I said it because I meant it. Yeah. And that's that's the kind of person and, and leader I, I want to be is somebody mm-hmm. who someone who speaks the truth, even mm-hmm. when it's unpopular. And, and so that, you know, so I meant it. Yeah. Does that... Does that come from your childhood? Because I know we jumped straight into sort of yeah. current policy stuff, but I, I did read, and I and I love this, I read that you were elected sixth grade class president <laughs> at Lakeview Elementary that's, School. Uh, that's true. My, my and, other campaign. And that in your which slogan <laughs> was, man with a plan. <laughs> and one of your childhood friends remembers that your platform then was to clean up a nearby park and... And classmates of yours in elementary school talk about how you were always serious and concerned and and looking at the larger picture. And clearly that tendency uh, has followed you through your life. You're you're very willing to look at the facts and and talk about, you know, unity and bipartisanship now. Where did that come from? Where does a sixth grader become the man with a plan? Well, that slogan, first that, that slogan came, that slogan, I think came from my mother, to be honest, <laughs> but I liked it. And I said, yeah. I approved you that. You said, I am a man with a plan, <laughs> exactly. mom. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, from a young age, and I, I'm thinking about where this, where this came from, and it may have come from, you know, this, you know, what I learned from my, my parents and some of the stories I mentioned earlier, but you know, I, I'm thinking now, where did this come from? And I'm not exactly sure. But s- ever since I was young, I did have a very strong sense for uh, f- for justice mm. that, you know, for some reason, I don't know why. I mean, I, I don't know ex- exactly why, but a sense that things should be just and that, mm-hmm. and then also 
I've long been passionate about about equality, that we are equal as human beings. And I remember as a a kid, when I was young, I wanted to be a filmmaker Mm. and we would make films, you know, my brother and friends and stuff. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. And that's what I wanted to do for a living uh, until I saw a film called Three Days of the Condor, which was is an old Robert Redford, Redford spied movie. film. Film still one of the best made, but it, you know that captured my attention and imagination, and I went on to want to work for the CIA. And there's that whole, you know, thing. But but another movie that I I saw that really influenced me as a kid uh, was a movie that is also a book called The Power of One. And if you've never seen it, if listeners have never seen it, I strongly recommend reading the book or watching the movie. But it's about a young boy who fights apartheid in Mm. South Africa. And I say that and I get choked up even thinking and talking about it. I've probably watched that movie, you know, 50 times um, and, and read the book. And, you know, that had a huge impact on me. Just... Um, both the the substance of it that that we are inherently equal, um, and I want to come back to, to to another source of that in a in a moment, but then this idea that that you can make a difference, you know, and and that is that's a movie, but mm. but I saw you know I saw my dad make a difference in in a small way, and I you know that film had a great impact on me. And another piece of it is is the following. Uh, you know, I was raised in in a, a Mormon family, in a, in a family that belong, you know, a family that belonged to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and so we would go to church every Sunday, and it was a big part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was taught to pray a, as a young boy, mm-hmm. and 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 I embraced that, and it, it became my own thing where. You know, I I would pray, you know, with my family when we would we would pray before dinner or sometimes at night before we went to bed, we'd pray mm-hmm. together. Um, but I would, uh, not as often as I should have, but per- make, say, personal prayers before I went to bed or in mm-hmm. the morning. And, and there were other times when, you know, things were not always easy when I was a kid. There were mm-hmm. some tough times. And I remember, you know, feeling very you know, hopeless at times as a kid mm-hmm. about, you know, certain things that were, were happening and challenges we faced or that I faced. Was that some of the, you know, financial stress you were talking that about? Was some or of was it. that more sort of family dynamic or community? It, it was, you know, financial stress. It was, you know, sometimes family dynamics. It was, it, there were a lot, there were different things, but, but a lot of it is sort of what I've, you know, explained just that financial stress. Sure. and. And, you know, some other things as well. But I, you know, there were moments when, you know, I I would pray to be to, to Heavenly Father who, you know, I believed knew who I was, knew who we all were, and I believed loved us all, including me. And I was, I, you know, I was, I remember, you know, being eight years old and, and sort of saying prayers in these moments where I felt hopeless. Mm-hmm. And... I have to say, in those moments, repeatedly and without fail, I felt comforted. Mm-hmm. And and again, I get emotional. This is gratitude that, that I'm feeling as I tell you the story. But I felt in those moments confirmation that, you know, that 
that Heavenly Father knew who I was mm. and that Heavenly Father loved me and that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I tell that story now is because I deduced even as a kid, well, if Heavenly Father knows me and loves me and cares about me and is willing to respond in this moment to me, mm-hmm. well, then he must be willing to do that to everyone. everyone. Yeah. And and if that's the case, if if we're equal in that sense, then that's it. We're equal. Yeah. You know? We should be equal everywhere. That's right. And yeah. so that had a, a super strong impact on me. And mm. so, you know, later in life when I would see movies like The Power of One or see evidence of injustice or inequality, it it always sort of it always it didn't sit well with me, but that's mm-hmm. not the right way. It 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 um you know, it angered me actually. That's yeah. the, the, the there's only one thing that really angers me. Mm. It's when the powerful mistreat the weak. And so through life, when I would see that, when I would see the powerful Mm -hmm. mistreating or abusing the weak, uh, it would, it would really inspire action on, on my part. Me too. My, my friend Glennon Doyle calls that sacred rage. And Mm, I talk a lot about that, that, that I feel in the same way that you do, I'm having such a, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing some gratitude to you because it's a, it's a mirror moment of thanks that you're willing to share because I, I really think that some of us were lucky enough to see the truth young mm, right, and then to be willing to fight for it. Right. And similarly, you know, and I'm always so interested how people's spirituality has affected the way they see the world because I grew up in a family with a mom who was raised Italian Catholic and a dad who's agnostic and then the other sort of extended half of my family is all Jewish. Yeah. And so I grew up going going to church, not going to church, thinking of nature as church and going to synagogue and loving synagogue. Yeah. And then realizing that people would get really heated when they would hear that I celebrated two holidays of theoretically opposing religions. Right. But I was kind of like, holidays are the best. We have Hanukkah and then we have Christmas and then it's New Year's. And, yeah. you know, it was like, it was like yeah. a never-ending party of family yeah. food and togetherness. And my studies of those spaces yielded that basically the window dressing is different, but everyone says the same thing, which is love thy neighbor and, and lift up those who are, have, have been dealt cards to be beneath you in some resource level of life. And, and because I also was encouraged to believe it, don't believe it, decide what feels true for you, I realized I found it in nature. And I realized things like the Fibonacci sequence and all of these shapes and histories in nature that repeat and repeat and repeat and the beauty of evolution and and how the planet has developed. And then I got excited and started studying Eastern philosophy and Hindu philosophy and started transcendental meditation. And, And for me, learning in all of these spaces, again, just reiterates it's love it's love it's love and lift people up lift people up lift people up and so you speak in terms of heavenly father i speak in terms of the universe i don't know what to call it so Mm -hmm. to me it's like the universe loves us so much Mm -hmm. and and where my sacred rage comes from is that injustice feels like an affront 
to the gift of the universe. Yeah, and to truth. Yes. Yeah. Like we've been handed this opportunity mm. to advocate for our community, for our mm. village. We we mm. evolved in these villages of humans. Mm -hmm. And to me, it seems only logical that as time goes on and the millennia continue, our villages are meant to become one big village. And when we when we miss it, and when we repeat the mistakes of the past, and when someone like a George Takei is talking about what it was like to be in an internment camp, which is mm -hmm. an American concentration camp that right. didn't have a death chamber. Right. That's, that's all right. that that is. That's you know, right. people are upset with AOC for right. using the term. Right. And I think it's important to use the term because we have to be historically accurate. Right. And, and the fact that he in his old age is alive and seeing this happen again and seeing children being abused and, and that we are acting as though their children are not our children. It seems so wild to me and it it does feel like it goes against the sacred and i think that's where the sacred rage can yeah, come from right, right. because it's a fuel for humanity that's right and and i guess that that leads me to be curious do you still is is the mormon church still important in your life or mm -hmm. do you have a different kind of spirituality do you mm -hmm. like where where do you find that in your adult life yeah, well, well, it is, you know, and it's, mm. um, you know, I've, I, I like to say that I, I'm 43 years old now, and I like to say, don't look a day over 20. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah thanks. You know, I've, I've lived a lot of life mm -hmm. in, in, in my 40 plus years. You know, whether it's sort of my experience as a kid or like, you know, then working for the Central Intelligence Agency I for get to over that a too. decade. I have so many questions. <laughs> Yeah, and and just you know, I've traveled around. I've been to every corner of the planet. It seems, mm -hmm. I and mean, there are always new places to go. And I've mm -hmm. got a list. But you Did know, you have to get that extension thing in your passport. Um, no, I just order extra thick passports. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> you got ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or sometimes you can get a second passport. So sometimes oh, I've had two. That's like a CIA thing. Uh, it's Maybe. A, a little known thing. You can get it done. You know. If you are traveling, for example, if you're going to travel to, travel to Israel, you used yeah. to be able to get two passports because Arab countries wouldn't let you in if you'd been to Israel. So mm -hmm. you could get two passports. I don't know if that's still a thing. Right. But anyway, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even, what, what did I ask you? Oh, oh was I, I was asking. Oh, about my current faith. Yeah, yeah. I was asking yeah. how, how in, in the shape of your life now does your, do you have a spiritual practice I, I do, and I, I was sort of my long wind up was just I, I was just saying that I I've lived a lot of life in my forty plus three years, and uh, and I, I've I've seen a lot and I've experienced a lot and mm -hmm. um, and and as I've done that I've sort of I've I've seen uh, and learned a lot and 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 you might now be expecting me to say and so now you know my faith is very different. Yes, it has matured and it's, you know, there was a time in my life where I was very, a very black and white sort of person. Mm. And now I see more grays. And, mm. and that comes from understanding, you know, the human condition mm. and being a part of that, experiencing it for myself and seeing mm -hmm. it in others. But I, I, I will say that, you know, I, I do believe that it, it, it is still a part, my faith is still a part of my life, a significant part of my life. I've not always been a perfect practitioner of my faith, and, but I notice in my life that, that when I 
am when I do the things that I believe that I, I should do, which include, you know, helping others, you know, treating others, loving others, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, respecting myself, um, trying to stay in tune with, with God, trying to, you know, pray mm. to help me stay in tune, trying to study the scriptures. Uh, when I do those things, I feel filled with, with, you know, more gratitude and kindness to others, mm-hmm. more charity for others, mm-hmm. charity in the sense that the love, the love of others, love mm-hmm. for others, not in the sort of charitable giving sense, but in, mm-hmm. in that former sense. And, uh, I find that it, it helps me to lead a, a better, more giving, more loving mm-hmm. and, and more guided life, more inspired life. I find that my relationship to God, when I'm respecting it, pays all kinds of dividends, whether they be spiritual or health mm-hmm. or even professional. That um, I feel, you know, when I'm in tune in this way, when I'm when I'm filled with that love for others, mm-hmm. when I'm filled with gratitude for everything I have in life everything I've experienced, the good and the bad. Some of that I brought upon myself, you know, good or bad. Mm. I am a better person. I, I'm uh, more patient. I feel more inspiration for my work. I find new ways to help people. Yeah. New opportunities to help people seem to arise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, it's, it's, it, my faith is still very important to me. And you know, I I learn a lot from studying, you know, the life of of Jesus Christ and to try trying to actually live mm-hmm. like he lived, and it pains me a great deal to see people in this country today. Not that I'm any example of perfection because I'm not, but completely abusing others in the name of Christ. Yeah, it's and pretty devastating. It's it's terrible, and it's been interesting. For me, I, I find myself just thinking like, yes, to so many of the things that you've just said. One of, one of the things I'm most grateful for have, has been my experiences of touching worship in so many different places mm-hmm. and experiencing that reminder to step outside of myself. Mm-hmm. Think about a bird's eye view. Think about what it would look like to look down on the world and see everyone the same. Yeah. And you know, you you talked about traveling in the Middle East and I remember having to get the extra sheet in my passport yeah. because I, I was on a trip visiting all of the sacred sites through Israel mm-hmm. and the Ramon crater was this incredibly mystical experience for me and mm-hmm. you know, not a religious space, but mm-hmm. I told you nature feels yeah, like feels yeah. like a, a house of worship to me. Yeah. And and I I left there and I traveled to Jordan and then I traveled to Turkey and I've been through parts of the Middle East many times and and I find such beauty in all of it. And and I remember being in Turkey and sitting in Hagia Sophia and mm-hmm. people were like, it's your mosque. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm you know, praying there with people. And, and I attend mosque here in LA with my mm-hmm. friend Metha. And people are, people always are, wonder why, you know, mm-hmm. you know, some friend cracked a joke and was like, don't you have enough religious things to do like with your family? <laughs> and, 
And because of all the curiosity I had as a kid that was encouraged, I spent my whole senior year in high school taking courses on Islamic studies. Mm -hmm. And it's been such an interesting thing because that that point you talk about that that there are people in this country who claim that they're Christian, I don't mm-hmm. I can't do it without the air quotes, who mistreat children and the poor mm-hmm. and and don't see the irony. And then those are often the people that I wind up speaking to as, you know, a proximal advocate for a culture that I have been experiencing and loved since I was 17, who, you know, there's been this demonization of Islam and the Islamophobia being encouraged in this country and the xenophobia being encouraged in this country. And I feel so privileged to have a perspective on so many different communities. And, you know, to me, it it seems so obvious, like, how how could you think that someone who would literally defy the the sort of sacredness of their religion to to be an extremist, they don't have anything to do with the religion. Just like you can't claim that if you're willing to abuse children, you you don't get to call yourself a Christian, you know? And I wonder... I guess I'm just sort of having this moment where I'm like, God, I wonder where, where the where the dissonance came from. How how we kind of where and wherever, whether you believe in something specific, there's a specific book that you worship, or or you're mm-hmm. agnostic and you just think something's going on in the world that feels a little magical sometimes, you know, or, or maybe you're an atheist. I don't know, but I wonder how we can kind of divest from kindness and claim that we believe in that we believe in it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a tough question. And I, I grapple with that too, especially because, you know, I feel like I've come from, from the, the sort of the Christian world and, mm-hmm. and that community and to, to see what's happening in parts of it and a great deal of it in the United States is really challenging. And, and all I can say, you know, I, I will say it's, of course, faith and religion, it, it's such a charged, but mm-hmm. also very personal issue. Mm-hmm. I really, you know, I hate to talk about, or I'm very cautious about talking about, you know, other people's faith and their practice because well, you, can't generalize. You, you never really know sort of yeah. how people, but, but I, but I do think it's important in these moments to, to, to speak some, some truth mm-hmm. as, as I'm observing it. And, and I, would ask the question if if you as a Christian or any faith that encourages these sort of foundational, you know, the foundational love of all human beings, which you referred to earlier, if if you are then okay with caging children mm-hmm. of any kind, any kind or people, mm-hmm. especially vulnerable people who are seeking refuge. Mm-hmm. You know, one, I, I think we need to ask the question, did that person, even before those situations came up, did they actually ever embrace uh, what they said they embraced? Right. What I'm saying is, is it a change so much or had they not actually ever embraced in the Christian sense? Mm. Did you ever actually study, know, and embrace Christ and Christianity if you're now advocating for children in for children to be held in cages, yeah. you know, did you were you ever actually a Christian, a, a disciple of Christ? Right. I think that's a question we have to ask, and and more, and we need to ask ourselves if if you're in a place now where you think that's okay, where you're defending that, mm-hmm. defending someone who does that. Where were you 
before that? What mm-hmm. did you, who were you before that? And maybe what are there's your beliefs really. Yes. Sure. God, that's really interesting. And I, and I, and it leads me to wonder, and I know you mentioned the film as an inspiration, but mm-hmm. how, how does a kid who grows up the way that you did and, and who, who went on a mission trip to Brazil, mm-hmm. how do you then end up in the CIA? I'm just like, it's so wild because I think there's such beauty in the way that we actually as complex beings combine where we come from and our families and our culture and our history and our faith and and all of these things. And, and this complexity that is you led you to start working for the government in a very serious way while you were still in college, right? Yeah. So were you just like a super student? You know, did you get recruited or did you go to them? How does that happen? Because that that hmm. feels that stuff feels to me like like my industry. It feels like Hollywood. I'm like, yeah. this is like a movie and I need to understand. Yeah. You know, right, like right. you you were in Brazil doing yeah. service and then hmm. suddenly you're like working at the CIA. What's going on? Yeah, right, right. Did like some guy in a trench coat show up at your door? You know, how does it work? Well, well, I'll tell you that. But I will say, you know, so people do wonder about that. And I get it. You know, how can you go from being a, a missionary where you're helping people build homes and clean things up and you're teaching people, in my case, about Jesus Christ how can you go do that and then go on to work for an organization like the CIA? Right. Um, but, you know, I've done different things in life, you know, but, you know, at a, I, I was a full-time, although volunteer refugee resettlement officer for the UN in Jordan when for a time. That? I took a, a year, I was doing study abroad in Israel and Jordan when I, when I was late in my college experience. And I was studying Arabic and also did that work. So I would work with refugees who had come from Syria and Iraq and North Africa and help them find a new home working with a variety of embassies in Amman, Jordan. And I did that on behalf of the UN. But anyway, I didn't. So I've done that. Yes, Mm -hmm. I was a missionary. I I worked for the CIA. I was also, you know, a a banker for an investment banker for Goldman Sachs. And that was after the CIA. That was after the CIA. You were working for the CIA part-time in college? Yes, and right? I'll come back to that, but okay. I just want to make the bigger point oh, that, sure. that I do believe that there's there's a time and a season for things for in everything. life. Yeah. And, um, and we're multifaceted. We're, this idea that we're meant to fit in a box That's right. is so bizarre. That's right. And certainly in the political world, people want to put you in a mm-hmm. box constantly. The theme that runs through all of that is, is just that I, I've always felt compelled to make a difference. Mm. And throughout my adolescent, you know, late adolescent and then adult life, I've mostly done that. And I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had to do it. Now, the exception has been my time as a banker. Now, I'm not one who attacks investment bankers. You know, I learned <laughs> a lot as an investment banker, things that are important to know about how our economies work. But most of my career, I've spent working on issues that I thought needed work, you know, mm-hmm. that needed somebody to address them. And and that's always been what's motivated me. I have to do work that I care about that I think is going to make a positive difference. So that's that's the theme that's run through mm-hmm. through my my professional life. But as far as how I ended up working at the CIA, I uh you know, when I when I was young, probably 14 years old, you know, my dad brought home 
movies from Blockbuster. I used to rent Blockbuster movies at the time. Mm-hmm. And I miss Blockbuster. Yeah, RIP. It, it was great. Um, and, you know, that's what our entertainment was. We didn't have a lot of money. So that's what we did. We cooked popcorn. We watched movies. He brought home Three Days of the Condor. I watched it. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, it's, you know, you know, a story about sort of a, a rogue cell inside the CIA, which is what often CIA movies are about, even mm-hmm. though it's sort of, you know, fantastic. But but that, at least on that immature level, um, captured my attention. And I started reading every book I could about the CIA and uh, and read really a, quite a number of books in the, in the subsequent couple of years about, about the organization. Uh, and then one summer when I was, I think, about 16 years old, I decided that I was going to reach out and see what kind of opportunities there were at the agency. I was ready, I thought. So I dialed 411 because that's how you did it at the time to get a number. You didn't, there was no internet. Yeah. Couldn't Google a number, you know. So I dialed 411. I asked for Langley, Virginia, which is the fictitious place where CIA headquarters exists. They couldn't connect me because they said that wasn't a place. Finally, I figured out that it was McLean, Virginia, where the organization actually existed. I was ultimately patched through to the agency and an old man picked up the phone and he said, hello. And I said, hello, is this the CIA? And he said, who are you calling for, sir? And I said, is this the CIA? And he said, sir, who are you calling for? And I got chills in that moment, realizing that indeed I was talking to the CIA. And of course they wouldn't tell me it was the CIA. (laughs) Um, And so I got my wits about me finally and said, I'd remembered that there was a recruitment center. So I said, could I speak with the recruitment center? And he said, very well. And he connected me to a receptionist and, and she answered the phone and said, recruitment center. And I started to talk to her. And eventually in our brief conversation, I I mentioned to her that I had a brown belt in Taekwondo and I asked her if that would make me more competitive. And she started laughing and she said, how old are you? And I said, I'm 16 or whatever it was. She laughed some more and she said, "Uh, call back when you're older. And so I said, and she was good. She was good about it. So I said, fine, hung up the phone and and I, I waited a couple of weeks and I was indeed older. And I called 411 again, was patched through, mm-hmm. got the, you know, the operator, then got the recruitment center. Then when I got to the receptionist at the recruitment center, I asked to speak with a recruitment officer and was connected to someone who gave me a name, which I'm sure wasn't their true name, but I'll, you know, not mention it here. Just and, in case. and that person uh, and I would re- would be in contact for the next few years as I went through high school, finished high school, you know, did a little bit of college and went on my mission. Um, he told me, you know, he gave me advice about whether to join the military or not. I was thinking about joining the Marines and, you know, he gave me advice about that. He, mm. you know, told me not to carry his name and number with him while I was in Brazil on my mission because, you know, he knew that would be a bad idea. And that was great advice because wow. I wasn't there to work for the agency. I was there to wow. volunteer for my church and Long story short is I got back from my mission, returned to school, and reconnected with the agency, went through a hiring process where they flew me out. I mean, you know, I'm just a sophomore at this mm-hmm. point. 
And they're flying me out to DC a couple of times to be interviewed and to talk to shrinks. And and this is their co-op program this that is their allows co- yeah. students to work while they're in college. That's right. So I would do a semester. What, what ended up happening is I, you know, got through the the interview, the application process. They polygraphed polygraphed me. All of this, wow. which for a kid, I mean, I was in my early twenties at the time. I'd taken two years to go to Brazil, so I was a little bit older, but I was still young. But anyway, they ended up hiring me into the co-op program, which was a program that I believe still exists. I don't know for sure that allows you to do a semester of work and then at at headquarters and then go back to school and then alternate. So that's what I did. I went back and forth between the agency's headquarters and school for the rest of my college experience. And it was an incredible experience. And I started out on the analytical side as a student because that's the only, they wouldn't allow students into the operational side of right. the stuff of handling our, sensitive information and whatnot. Well, we were handling, yeah. I mean, on the analytical side, I was still handling sensitive information, mm. but it was more like I would read the reports of the operatives, the 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 intelligence, and less like their you know information about how they did their work, which was right. sensitive. Their 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 ways of of operating. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's changed. I think they eventually did lo- let students into that. But I had known the whole time that I wanted to be on the operational side. So as soon as I graduated from college, I went through a process. You know, they took me and I went into training right as 9-11 was happening. And then the rest is history. Yeah. And so how long then were you in the CIA? I was an employee from May of 99, I think, till August of 2010. Wow. Gosh, that's a long time. What can you tell us about it? Because I, I know there's probably so much you can't talk about. I don't know if there's something that you worked on that's now declassified that you can sort of walk us through or what? It's like, I feel like I'm, on, I'm about to be on the other end of like, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. No, like, no, how no, does no. it, no, I won't you know do what? <laughs> it's, it's like, how, how do you talk to people about Yeah. So actually there's a lot more that I can talk about than can't. I I would say, I would say that the stuff that I can't talk about is stuff that you, you, you wouldn't really care to know, you know, Mm. you know, the, the names of people who I worked with Mm. either foreigners or Americans, you know, there is some stuff, some, you know, some tactics, some methods that we use that are, that are of interest, of course, that, you know, that we protect, that I'll protect, that I'm Mm -hmm. committed to protecting, that I need to protect. But there's a lot out there about sort of, you know, the day-to-day in an operations officer li- officer's life or an operative, which is what the media would call us, mm-hmm. that is the, that I can talk about. And, you know, basically what, what my job was, was to, was to convince foreign government officials and members of terrorist organizations and others to, to, to basically help us achieve our goals. And so in the case of, you know, let's say, you know, a North Korean or Iranian government official, I would be trying to convince them to spy on behalf of the U.S. government and to work secretly on our behalf under the direction of the CIA. How do you get in front of one such official to even begin this conversation? Well, you have a, a cover. First of all, you're operating undercover. Okay. And that cover gives you... So you have passports with fake names on them? Um, Maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I can say can't about that Can't answer that, that question. One, right? Okay. But that, no, that, it's okay. I guess, I'm so excited about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have a cover and 
Are there people assisting you in that cover role in getting in front of those officials? Yes. Co- okay. Covers can be very, um, very well developed mm. or they can be very thin. Mm. If you need a cover to last for a year or two years or three years or four years or five years, it better be well developed. It better be really well developed and very well protected and backed up. Mm-hmm. If you need a cover to last for an hour, and that's another, that's a situation that exists that I was in a lot too. Um, then that the cover doesn't have to be so so well developed. It can sure. be much thinner, but it serves its purpose for an hour. And so I had all all of those things. Um, Is that frightening? I mean, it's challenging. You you know you 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 need to get used to becoming another person. I mean, you you know it's it's acting really. Yeah. I mean, you you really have to internalize that you are another person. If you do it well. Mm-hmm. You internalize that you're another person, or even better, if you can, you draw on threads of yourself that mm-hmm. are yourself, but that aren't what people know of you or what they see when they look at you in mm-hmm. normal life, but that you know exist. Yeah. You pull those out of you, and you you can become what looks like a different person. You have to find the truth in it. Does your time serving as an advisor on national security issues for the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, does, are there things that you learned during that time period that, that help you speak to all of this now? And, and what was it like doing that? Because you went from a career in the CIA mm-hmm. into investment banking, and then mm-hmm. you came back in as this advisor and, and yeah. as a policy director. Yeah. What did, what did that look like and and how does how does that experience shape your view of today? That's a great question. I and I actually just realized I want to get into that question I asked you. But something that I want to ask you, I guess I get so used to having to pretend to be someone else cuz I do that for a living at work. Yeah. But when you're doing it in your real life and your work and your life bleed over and you're living in foreign countries and you're working undercover. Yeah. What is that experience like? Who can you tell in your life, in your real life, your home life, who can you tell what you do? What can you share with them? And and does the cover story, does that create blurred lines with your own life? Or what what does that do as a to you as a person? Yeah. Oh, so you know, thanks for asking. I mean, it's it's a great question. I look, it becomes your life. It depends mm-hmm. on the kind of cover it is, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if it's a one hour cover, then, you know, your friends don't never know you were in that cover. If it's a five year cover or 10 year cover, then because you're utilizing different covers for different moments, but mm-hmm. there are some covers that will last quite a long time. That is who you are at that point. If you're in this cover for, you know, let's call it, you know, uh, a month plus that is your life. Mm -hmm. And, and then that can go on for years in some cases. And so it, it is who you, you must become. Mm -hmm. It's who you are. Now you may get to continue to be yourself in those situations. In some situations you may not be actually yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe that's sort of, I don't mean for that to be, I mean that you may be, I may be 
Evan and now I'm doing X. This is my job. I'm a shoe salesman, you mm. know, or it may be that I'm a completely different person. And that's how I'll right. say that. So, wow. and that either one of those things can go on for, for a long, long time. So how do you keep a tether to home? Or do you? So in some cases, in the in some cases, if you're a completely, if you become a completely different person, then you are you you rarely calling you're rarely calling home, if mm-hmm. ever. If you are going to make contact with home, then that you do it in very careful ways and very sparingly. Wow. And so there there were periods in my service where I would go very long amounts of time without talking to any friends or family. Yeah. And so, and, and I had, my parents knew what I did for a living. My siblings didn't. Uh, My, I had two or three friends who were very, very close, extremely trusted friends who I, I told the truth to and, and, and I needed to, because I needed them to help basically help me cover myself. And so they existed. They, they knew what was going on in my life and we're able to, in our circles of friends, help me maintain my cover right. by backing me up in my wow. cover and by letting me know when there were problems, when somebody was sort of maybe getting curious. And wow. so I had a few friends like that, you know, and who would do other things to help me out, but they were, I'm, you know, forever grateful for, for them and f- for what they did for me in, in that service. They helped me perform my service to the country, but, but it's very hard and it's lonely to be honest. And there were times when, I mean, first of all, I loved my job. It was always exciting. I never for a second had a sense that what I never wondered and what I and, and what I I'm doing is it important or is it is it needed? There was never a moment, not even a millisecond, when I, you know, didn't sleep much during those years. But when I would get out of bed, I was always excited to get after it, and mm. it was always, you know, that was always, always true. There was never a case where that wasn't true during that time. But it is also lonely. I mean, you're pretending to be someone else on one level or another, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, you start to long for like basic healthy relationships with your family, mm. you know, romantic relationships. I mm-hmm. mean, there were to try to date as a CIA, an undercover CIA officer is very difficult. I mean, I felt like it was impossible to date having to move and be on location for work all the time, yeah. but I was still myself wherever I lived. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It's like, oh my God, what a crazy because the idea of building a relationship with someone is getting to know someone and building a relationship on trust. And when you can't tell someone who you are. That's right. And and wow. it really is a question of who you are. Because mm-hmm. for me, this was a passion. This was something that I had wanted to do for a long time mm-hmm. since I was a kid. I believed in it. it. Most of my service came after 9-11. And so, you know, there was a lot of important work to be done. Yes. And and there was a fire burning in me for that work and that service. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, I, while I was dating, I was telling women I was dating that I did another job. You and were I, a shoe salesman. <laughs> I tried to make it sound as boring as possible because I didn't want them to ask questions about it because I didn't want to have to repeatedly lie to them, even though I did, because I had to maintain my cover. And so not only was I lying to them about what I did for a living, but they also never would know 
what was in here. You know, I'm yeah. pointing to my chest, what was burning in there. Mm-hmm. They didn't know the, the real me. And in a couple of cases, I, I thought, okay, this particular relationship shows promise. So I'm going to share the truth about me. And they gave us that kind of flexibility at the agency. But if you wow. used if you used that license too much, then you would get you you know you were in trouble. So you couldn't do it too much, but you could exercise your did own. Did you judgment. have to tell them if yes. you were going to share with a romantic partner? You had to uh, at least after the fact. Yeah. Wow. So in a couple of cases, I did. I decided, okay, this shows promise. You know, I've wanted to be a father and a husband for the, a long time, mm-hmm. all right? And the agency, that service sort of put that on hold for a lot of years. Sure. But I still took it seriously. And if I could make it happen while I was an agency officer, I was going to try to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And so there were a couple of times, as I said, where it showed, I thought things showed potential. So I decided that I was going to tell my girlfriends the the truth. And so, you know, I'd sit them down and I would say like, look, there's something I need to tell you. And you know, I don't work at X. I work for the Central Intelligence Agency and I am undercover. And I'm having a panic attack for you. Like I'm literally holding the sides of my face. I'm so anxious. Yeah. And so, and, and so what would end up happening and those conversations were interesting and the way they, they went in both cases were like this. At first there was just sort of disbelief. And in some cases I had tried to gradually like break them into the idea that like there's something else you know like i say i work at nordstrom selling shoes covers were never that but (laughs) um but in reality there's something else about me something else that i do trying to help them understand that slowly break them into it and so but and even in and i think at least one of the cases they they basically figured it out but when i actually told her then she was completely shocked that, oh my goodness, Whoa. you know, this is reality, right? Whoa. And so at first there was there's sort of intrigue, which is interesting, but not sort of what you're going for in those moments. Right. And then and then sort of an appreciation of that expression of truth and reality. Mm-hmm. But and so you think that, okay, now we're going to be part of a circle of trust in that moment, but that's actually not how it worked. How it worked was that they would then realize that I had been lying to them for a long time, and that you know I still couldn't Yikes. tell them about my day to day life mm-hmm. because there were I was doing classified things on a daily basis, every day, all day long, literally. Yeah. And so they knew where I worked and the general contours of my job, but they did not know what I was involved in. So I couldn't come, you know, see them in the evenings and like share my workday with them. Right. And so what I noticed is that because I couldn't share they stopped sharing, you know, the, the, the unclassified details of their lives. Mm. And so, and when that happens, when, you know, you're, you, it just spins out of control. So right. it was, and I'd go through like, that's a long story. And I apologize for that. But oh. the point is you, you make those sacrifices, mm-hmm. you, less time with your parents. I mean, you know, my parents have just retired. I, I missed a decade of their lives, of my siblings' lives. Yes. Of, of my friends' lives. You give all of that up. There was a mm-hmm. time during my service when I literally longed for the ability to just go to a baseball game. 
I just wanted to sit and watch. We got to get you to a Dodger game. <laughs> yeah. Next time you're in LA, well, we're I'm a going. Giants fan. I'm trying to say, but I, I, I will mean, still enjoy a Dodgers. Yeah, game. Yeah, <laughs> you just listen. It's like I, I'm an LA sports fan. I lived in Chicago for a long time. I went to Blackhawks. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. No, I'm with. When you move but, yeah. a lot, you have to. Also, yeah. Dodger dogs are pretty great. So yeah, yeah we I'm we have we have, we have some things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you feel like you're catching up, right? Yeah, you do. I yeah. mean, you're catching up on you know, movies that are part of the fabric of the country now. Wow. You're catching up on all that stuff. So yeah, so yeah, you do make sacrifices. But more than that, I, you know, I'll just say that I worked for, for and with incredible people at the agency. Mm-hmm. And I wish so much that all Americans could know the Americans I know yes. and, and knew at the agency. I mean, these are people who sacrifice immensely. Mm-hmm. These are people who find a way to get the impossible done. Yeah. I mean, I, that is something that, you know, uh, I, I never say, I, I, I don't often say it can't be done anymore because mm-hmm. first of all, I mean, that that's just not who I am as a person, but, but the agency is full of people, especially on the operational side of the house, those who carry out ops, covert operations, uh, full of people who find a way to get it done and yeah. and people who are true patriots and and you know yes mistakes are made and I feel like I I have to say that because you know some have been made recently in the past decade but uh, you know and that's another that's another topic but I I wish that all Americans could know the Americans who I know and mm-hmm. and and we all do actually I'll say we all know somebody who served in the military mm-hmm. um who's made tremendous sacrifices who or who has been willing to make even greater sacrifices and I'm talking about loss of life and limb yes. and maybe they didn't have to give that and maybe the, maybe the damage is, is you know that they've experienced is is psychological is in the mental health realm, or maybe mm-hmm. they, they escaped, you know, unscathed relatively, but they still were willing to, to give all of that for the country it's and sacrifice. And most importantly, for, for what this country stands for, which yeah. is more than, you know, as much as the president and his, his movement would like us to believe that our country is defined by the color of our skin or by, by our religion, or even by the, 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 the geographic contours of our country mm-hmm. that is not what uh, our founders believed. Our founders believe that what defines us ultimately is our commitment to our values. And that's mm-hmm. what the whole country was founded upon. And that's what, that's what the Americans I served with are fighting for. You, you touch on, and, you, and I, again, I'm so grateful that you've been so publicly open about how you feel about these things and what is so blatantly you would imagine obvious. Yeah. You have called out the president for his racism, right. for his nationalism, his xenophobia, his courting of white supremacists. Do you see those things, that blatantly racist, sexist, nationalistic behavior? Do you see that as a threat to our national security? 100%. I mean, it, it is a threat to our freedom at mm. even a more fundamental level. This is, this is a, a threat to what America is. And, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as you have a leader, it's, you know, I mean, it's, look, there's a, a thing that I like to call the authoritarian playbook. Mm. And it, it starts, it all starts with this. It all starts with you as a leader or a figure, an authoritarian figure, 
deciding that you're going to place yourself above the interests of a country and above the interests of a people. Mm. And so once you decide to do that, then that means that you're going to use, you're going to pursue office and use your office, should you obtain it, to serve yourself rather than the country. And so then once you make that decision, then you start engaging in real corruption if you haven't already. And once you start engaging in real corruption, uh, you don't want to be held accountable for it. So you start to attack those who will highlight the fact and make public the fact that you are corrupt. Mm-hmm. So you go after law enforcement. So then, and you go after the press, mm-hmm. and and you do that because you don't want to be exposed for for the wrong your wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. You also start to attract the very uh, to attack the very notion of truth, and you you do all that so that you can't be held accountable. And once you can't be held accountable because in practical terms, people consider there to be no truth, then you can, and, and no virtue, Mm. then you can start attacking, you can, your attacks get even stronger against the institutions that would hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. So you start, you can, you know, fire senior members of law enforcement. You can put in loyalists into those positions who will protect you. Mm -hmm. Um, You can invite foreign interference into uh, our country to mm. manipulate the outcomes of uh, our our political systems, our elections, uh, you can do all of that, and you're you're you know you you have carte blanche because you can't you're not being held accountable because of the steps that you've already taken. Mm-hmm. This is the path that we are on as a country under President Trump's uh, leadership. Mm-hmm. And again, I hate to use that word leadership, but it's. But that's this is the path that we are on. It is a path that other countries have experienced. It is a path that is hard to get off of. Mm-hmm. And and I and I pray that we will wake up quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I think many of us understand the threat. And again, a majority of Americans are standing up to the president, which encourages me. Mm-hmm. But I hope that we have a free and fair election in 2020 where the voice of the people is truly heard. But I am worried that that may not be the case because that wasn't the case in 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, the incentives are such that it very well may not be the case in 2020. Mm -hmm. Things may look a little different in 2020, what Trump and the Russians and perhaps the Saudis and others do may be a little bit different, but you know, they're learning too. They're evolving. They're evolving. We're not doing much in terms of evolving on this front. They are evolving a lot. Um, but I'm, I'm worried about that. What do you think again, as a person who comes from a historically more conservative background, Mm -hmm. who's willing to call out issues like racism and sexism, which are oddly becoming polarized and also shouldn't be. They we can't be let that be the case. Yeah. Bipartisan problems. What do you think is important for the conservative party to do to fight those things, to uplift communities of color in America, to uplift women in America? You yeah. know, why, why are we acting as though those are liberal ideas rather mm-hmm. than ideas rooted in equality, which should be bipartisan? Yeah, you know, in my, you know, when I when people ask me, do you still consider yourself a conservative? I always say yes, and you know, I've been in the pub- public life now since 2016, mm-hmm. and haven't changed on that. And for me, what conservative, conservatives, conservatism has always meant, even before sort of my the public part of my life, has always meant conserving our fundamental values. Mm-hmm. 
mm. um, which are liberty and equality in, in my mind. Those are the two ideas, the observations that our founders made that, yes, they implemented imperfectly, but those are the essential observations um, of, of, of essential, enduring, natural truths that I think are worth conserving, therefore I'm a conservative. Mm-hmm. Now, progressives and liberals might say, well, yeah, they may feel, okay, well, I agree with that, but I'm more interested in advancing them. And I'm interested in advancing them too, but I think it's, you know, there have been some studies done where there's actually like a personality difference between people who consider themselves conservatives and liberals. Like mm-hmm. conservatives tend to be a little slower to change in general, even in their personal lives. Liberals or progressives are just more open to new things, you know? So I may just be that kind of person where I'm just, you know, I'm a little, maybe a slower mover on change, you know, in, in my own personal life. And I, but I, you know, I do, you know, I'm not entirely sort of like that. I don't mean to give that impression, but I do like to, you know, always be progressing as a human being. Mm-hmm. But, but I will say that that's why I'm a conservative because I think these things have to be preserved and protected, but also advanced. And, you know, you asked, you know, what should the Republican party do? What would a conservative party do? Well, first of all, embrace those values on a philosophical level. I don't think that's any longer the case. And mm-hmm. I feel a little bit naive in, in in a sense that, you know, I always thought we actually believed in these things, you know, <laughs> in the, on the Republican side that, you know, we did, that we believed that all human beings were equal, that we believed that we were inherently free and all of this, you know, and I think that there are some less elected leaders, but more, you know, other, you know, anti-Trump Republicans and conservatives who, who genuinely do believe that. But, mm. but I also think that, uh, that many of our conservative leaders in this country grew to just pay lip service to those things and not to mean it. Right. And, you know, uh, we, uh, you know, I don't want to go too much into in history and I won't, but People know about the Southern strategy, which if you haven't heard of the th- Southern strategy, I'm speaking to our listeners, you know, I encourage them to, to, you know, do a little reading about the Southern strategy, but it was basically when the Republican party decided decades ago that, you know, when the civil rights movement was moving along and progressing and having success, they, the Republican party learned that there were a bunch of uh, racist Democrats in the South who weren't happy with the advancements of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And so the Republican leadership at the time said, you know what we can do? We can go down and win those votes by signaling to those, you know, to those racist Democrats in the South that, you know, they ought to come over to the Republican side because we were okay with that. You know, that was, that was the plan, but to send those signals in a way that wouldn't turn off the moderate Republicans in the North, Mm -hmm. those who truly we're sort of in the in the you know the Lincolnian mm. you know realm of republicanism, which was to to fight for equality, and so ever since the Republican Party embraced that strategy, you know we brought into the party people who don't embrace those values. So the first thing is mm. embracing those philosophically, but I think criminal justice reform is is one of those things, and I know that mm-hmm. that has actually that's been one of the few things that has advanced in Washington under the Trump presidency. He has signed into into mm-hmm. law, you know, uh, you know, reform on that front. It's a start. More needs to be done, mm-hmm. but I do think criminal justice reform is one of those things. It, it uh, anyway, it, it's one of those things without getting too deep into it. Another one of those things is I, I think we have to realize that 
like, look, I, you know, I, it, it perplexes me a little bit when I hear people on the right not recognize that if your great grandparents or your grandparents were actual slaves, that maybe the impact of that goes through generations and that maybe, you know, it, you know, maybe that it impacts, you know, your life living today. If Mm -hmm. your grandmother and grandfather or great grandfather and mother were slaves, Mm -hmm. it impacts you today. How does it impact you? Well, I think we take for granted those of us, even, you know, I had a challenging upbringing in the sense that we didn't have everything we needed all Mm -hmm. the time. But I certainly had it a lot better than than a lot of people do. And I especially look at some of our minority communities, especially the African-American community. At least my family, basically, you know, we had, we knew how, we knew how the system worked in ways because it had worked for us generally. It was designed for you. It was designed for us. Mm-hmm. That came with an advantage, even as we struggled as a young family. Mm-hmm. We still had these advantages and we still knew how the, you know, knew how the system could work for us because it was designed for us. I, I, you know, it's, it's sort of perplexing to me when sometimes people, conservatives or Republicans, I hate to call them conservatives, but Republicans can't see how, look, we, we hold people as slaves for generations. You know, their, you know, their family after that is going to, to struggle under some of that for because of that for a while. And, and I think it's important for us to figure out a way to counter that in real time now. Yes. And that's where we can have a lot of policy debates about how to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to do that. And yes. so I remember coming to DC as a, as a college student and as a young CIA officer in training. And, um, you know, I, I remember, you know, driving across the country in my little car and it was bugs everywhere splattered all across the car. The first thing I needed to do was get a car wash. Mm-hmm. I arrived in DC. I'd grown up in the Seattle area. Aside from Sir Mix-a-Lot, there were no African-Americans or where I grew up. I wasn't used to seeing them at school. I mean, it was a pretty white community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I get to DC and I notice a few quick, a few things immediately. The first thing is I drive my car to the car wash and I go drive through the car wash. And on the other end of the car wash were four African-American men there to dry my car. And I just thought to myself, wait a second, like why, what are the odds that four African-American men are the ones drying my car? Why isn't it sort of a mix that reflects the population here? Mm -hmm. Why is it for African-American men? Mm -hmm. And that was a wake-up call to me coming from, you know, basically a a white community in in Washington state. Well, and you've pointed to it that it's the generational ripple effect of oppression. That's right. That you might move farther and farther away from your grandparents or great-grandparents being slaves in this country, if they were. Right. But it's not like when 
slavery was abolished, everyone was suddenly equal. And and people today seem to want to behave as though that's true. Right. And and if I hear one more person use that phrase, pull yourself up by your yeah. bootstraps, it's like, right. but not everybody has the same boots. Not everybody has straps to their boots. Exactly. You know? and, and, and when people were denied yeah. mortgages and when they were pushed yeah. into ghettos in metropolitan cities and when people right. have been historically pressed into underfunded school zones where then they're, they're in literal opportunity deserts, we can't act as though we've all had it the same. Absolutely right. That's exactly right. And that's the same thought I had you know, in, in when I arrived in D.C. at first and, and made that second observation, which was all the African-Americans essentially lived in, you know, two quadrants of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and all of the white people lived in this third quadrant. And in this fourth quadrant, there weren't many people at all living. But but the point is, I just thought, my goodness, like, why is it that all the African-Americans live in this part of town and all of the white people live in another part of town? Mm-hmm. And of course, the, you know, the part of town where all the white people lived is the affluent part of town. And then the rest is really struggling. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you see it in those stark terms, when you didn't grow up with that and all of a sudden you go see that, mm-hmm. you say, boy, we've, we've got a, a ways to go as a country. And, mm-hmm. and you know, there, there are people in the country now who, who view that as the, the idea that we need to do more for others as a threat to 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 their to them and to what mm. they have and and I want to say that you know African American people are not the only people struggling in this country we have others who are struggling too there mm-hmm. are white communities struggling as well absolutely but what we have to make sure I think is to first of all we shouldn't be defining ourselves by color that's not how I believe God defines us it's not it doesn't indicate our value either way um, but I think some people are who are struggling in the country they you know and this is this happens in every country when times are tough you sort of look around and you say you put people into the category of other yes. and you blame them for challenges that you're mm-hmm. facing and something i do think is important to at least acknowledge and and i do agree with you i think that segmenting is not helpful for us but i also think we can't be blind to the segmenting Agreed. that is caused by our society that's right and for whatever for whatever way that god or the universe or whatever you want to call it looks at us as a human people, we have built a system that is not equanimous for all humans. We have built a system that does systematically and overwhelmingly oppress people based on the tone of their skin. And I think that should make us even more motivated to change the system. Because again, as we've been talking about, the system doesn't match the ideals on which it was meant to be created. Mm -hmm. And you know, I there are mining communities of predominantly white people in Appalachia that are suffering tremendously <clears throat> because right. of the corporations that are taking advantage of the land and paying people such terrible wages that entire communities live on the poverty line and are exposed to environmental toxins. And, and th- those people need our help too. Right. And I and I don't think anyone in a in a community of struggle wants to talk about being privileged. But I think that the inherent privilege is just that, regardless of how hard your life is, and it might be the hardest, your your skin color hasn't made it harder. Your skin color, for us at least, sitting here right. having this conversation, doesn't make us more likely to get shot by the police. Right. And you know, I say that, and I feel like I must acknowledge that truth 
And I also say that as a person who comes from a military family, who yeah. ha, who spent half a decade working with the police and SWAT, who has been on many a USO trip, who is a big mm, supporter yeah. of our military and who is yeah. absolutely like on my knees in gratitude to our intelligence community and trying to create yeah. content to honor those people right, and their complexity. Right. Right. But I also think that if we're going to look at the ideals of what it means to be a public servant, we have to look at the fact that in certain areas of our public service, there are problems. You know, there are there are incredible military officials who deserve to be recognized as heroes. And then there are military officials who lost the pot and have been abusive in the communities they work in who don't deserve to be pardoned by the president. There are incredible men and women on our police force around the country who sign up because they want to protect their cities. And then we have badge bullies who need to be eradicated, who are members of racist and white supremacist Facebook groups in every state in the nation. You know, we, we need to acknowledge, as we have been trying to do with the larger idea of our constitution, we need to acknowledge Mm -hmm. the systems that were meant to be wonderful that have cracks and we need to patch the cracks. We need to, we need to figure out how to create more equality for everyone. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I want to be clear that, you know, when I refer to, when we talk about these communities in Appalachia that are Mm -hmm. really struggling, I don't mean to say that, you know, you know, look, African-Americans are struggling and they're struggling too. And the two Mm. are the same. Mm -hmm. What I meant to say on that is just that, you know, when these communities, these predominantly white communities struggle, Mm -hmm. then, and this is just, it's all, it's commonly the case and not only in our country, but in other countries. When you struggle, you start to look at others and you start to blame others, right? And so I think that and our government's encouraging that now. Our 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 government is, our our leaders are, many of them. But but I but that that sort of makes it all more of a challenge in that we've because we went through a tough time economically fairly recently, mm-hmm. and some people are still going through that, mm-hmm. we've started to do that othering thing, and that has made problems of racism in the United States even worse. But but I want to make sure that that people understand that I'm, you know, I'm not comparing sort of the struggles of those people to the struggle of people who are facing challenges because of the color of their skin and sure. because they come from families that were slave that that were enslaved generations ago. Mm-hmm. That is a you know that is a a unique challenge in our in our country that you know they're experiencing firsthand. Mm-hmm. And that we need to find a unique solution to in real time. Yeah. And, and that's just something real. It just pains me. It just shouldn't be the case where, you know, a poor neighborhood in Washington, D.C. is all African-American and a an affluent neighborhood is all white. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's in Washington, D.C. and in other countries around the or other cities around the country. That's the case. Mm-hmm. We need to find a way. And again, like how to do it. There are, so, there are lots of ideas, but we need to at least first more of us acknowledge that you know given that unique history mm-hmm. we have got to find a way to to uh to to get past that mm-hmm. and to help those communities get past that and i when i say communities in this sense i'm talking about the broader african american community mm-hmm. so i really appreciate you acknowledging that there's a lot of yeah. conservatives who won't and I think 
that's something that makes me feel hopeful. You know, we've mm-hmm. touched on the things that are incredibly frightening mm-hmm. and for good reason, but I also appreciate that there's been many moments of what feels hopeful in, in the conversation. Yeah. And yeah. and when people are really willing to just look at what society needs from a human perspective rather than a party perspective, you know, I, I always say I think America lives much more in a Venn diagram between yeah. the blue and the red. I think we're all a lot more purple than we acknowledge we are yeah and i wish that i wish that we got to have conversations from that space more maybe ours will inspire some people. yeah i hope so um yeah. would you ever run again i do think i'll pursue public office again uh Good. not you know you got my vote <laughs> all right well thank you <laughs> i appreciate that i you know I, it's not something that i you know i i didn't think it would happen the way it did in 2016 mm-hmm. i you know i've for a while felt that I might pursue public office, but I thought it would be, you know, maybe in my late fifties is sort mm-hmm. of the, maybe the last thing I do professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never, think about that. I never, do you? Yeah. Well, I'm like, you know, are you, eventually I would do that. Okay. I don't feel ready now. I have like, you know, I have things I want to do for, for my own life before my life officially belongs to other people, but right. Yeah. And that's part of it for me too, is that I would, I I really would love to be a husband and a father mm-hmm. uh, before I do that again. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I you know I I believe that there there are certain things you can do as a private person that are more difficult to do as a as a, an elected person, elected mm-hmm. an elected official, and certain ways to make a difference that that are easier as a private person and. And I enjoy having that flexibility now where I can focus solely on issues that I think are critical to the defense of our democracy. Mm -hmm. And when you're an elected official, I mean, you should certainly do a lot of that too, but then you're also, you know, on the, you're also responsible for a range of other issues that are really important, but aren't actually aren't the sort of defense of the foundation of our democracy. And because you have more tasks to manage and do and more responsibilities local issues that's and, local yeah. issues exactly and and i i feel very strongly that what i'm doing now is is what i need to be doing is the right thing for me to be doing and are you referencing your work with stand up republic yes can and you I, tell everyone who's listening about sure. the organization cuz it's so amazing yeah so stand up republic is is a cross partisan organization that invites conservatives independents and liberals progressives to join in the fight to help to protect our and improve our democracy. Mm. Uh, and so that's the work that we do. We have organizations around the state organizations around the country. You know, we have members in every state and every congressional district. And we organize to try to defend what we need to defend to, to protect our democracy. But it can't just stop there. We have to also improve our democracy. And we've been talking about that today too. And you know, it's important, for example, that we make our elections freer and fair so mm-hmm. that more people can participate, mm-hmm. so that voters are empowered to fully, you know, state their preferences. Go ahead. How do you feel about the Electoral College? Well, something that's hard for me is to understand that my vote counts less than someone else's in a, in a society where we're all meant to be equal. That's a tough thing. Yeah, I, I understand. And the gerrymandering is tough. Like all gerrymandering this stuff is, is another. Yeah, is really tough to realize yeah. that there are powers that be that are really trying to make some people count less than other people. That's what right. Do, what do you think we? 
do about that from your stand-up republic perspective yeah so on on gerrymandering we're also you know working against that we're working so gerrymandering you know where you know elected officials redraw the district lines so that so in such a way that their party can never be defeated in that district mm-hmm. essentially choosing their constituents rather than their constituents choosing them mm. that is not a democracy it's but yet it's antithetical to it America. is it, it absolutely is and it's you know it's it's done and and it's true that both parties do it Republicans, you know, do it. I, you know, we've spent a lot of time looking at North Carolina recently. We're active there. Um, Democrats in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, there are more egregious examples of it. I think the Republicans are fighting harder to protect gerrymandering right now. Democrats are friendly to more friendly to reforming it. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, that's something that we're fighting for. Independent committees that will draw those lines based on you know, uh, transparent formulas and, and, and processes mm-hmm. that, uh, that are fair and that create cohesive units for districts that, that, that make sense for those communities rather than to ensure that a certain party is always winning the elections. Because once you have that, you don't have truly accountable government. And, mm-hmm. and that's part of the reason we ended up in this space is that you know, there's not real competition in a lot of congressional districts. It's really just about, you know, the primary fight for the Republican. Like who who's who's going to win the Republican primary and that's who's going to represent the district because mm-hmm. the lines have been drawn such that a Democrat can never win or in Maryland a Republican can never win and that kind of thing. Right. What we need is real competition between those two parties, between the two parties. And and I think I'm confident that the best ideas ultimately win out. But we work very hard on that. The other thing, I mean, you mentioned the Electoral College. A lot of people are very opposed to the Electoral College. I would say that the Electoral College is not serving the purpose that it was intended to serve, which mm-hmm. was actually in part to be a check on the people. Because sometimes, you know, as much as sort of our will is is being threatened right now, you know, there are times when the will of the people is actually not right, can actually become quite dangerous, where you know, a majority of Americans could want to do something quite terrible. We've done it in the past and, and we're not unique. Other, other countries, other populations are vulnerable to that. Sometimes a bad idea gains temporary mm-hmm. uh, prominence and popularity mm-hmm. and we can do terrible things yeah, to minorities. Too. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and, and slavery, you know, mm-hmm. in, in our own country. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so we, you know, the electoral college is is there to sort of be a check on the popular mob mentality that can develop in societies. But what's happened is we don't have uh, electors in the electoral college who are acting as freely as, as they should be empowered to act. And so it, it no longer really serves its purpose. It could have served a purpose in protecting the country against president Trump it didn't do that, and that's a sign that it's not serving its purpose. Mm. So I, but I, I do think it it serves a purpose. But I think we need to strengthen its ability to serve that purpose, so that it does act on a, a check against the mob mentality and dangerous impulses of a majority that could take action against vulnerable minorities. But the other thing about it is that I, I think that you know we're we're a, a federal system of of governance governance meanings that meaning that we're a collection of states we're the united states of america and you know states 
we're we're not organized as one centrally controlled nation. We're mm-hmm. organized in states, and each of those states have a voice and want to make sure that voice has some impact. You know, Utah, for example, is a state that has only six member or electors to the electoral college. It's not not much, mm-hmm. but in a popular, a national popular vote scenario, Utah would have essentially very little, if any, real say in who was our president, or even less so. Even less populous states would basically have no say in who was elected president. And that isn't going to work either. And so the Electoral College addresses that. But I do understand that, look, the frustration that we feel where we have, you know, a president who was 11 million more Americans voted for someone else other than President Trump. Hillary Clinton defeated Trump in the popular vote by 3 million votes, yet we still have President Trump. I, I think we need to address that on the, you know, on the foreign interference level. We have you know, a foreign adversary who that that manipulated the entire tone and tenor of the 2016 campaign, mm-hmm. and that you know hacked the president's opponents and dumped that information into the public space. Mm-hmm. A tactic I'm sure they'll use again. I think you know even if they don't dump that information, they still exercise influence over those who they hack. Mm-hmm. And I think we we need to address that. I'm so curious if that's part of the reason that people who we naively thought might stand up to Trump aren't. I'm curious because we know that they also hacked the RNC. Right. But none of that information has been released. I'm That's real right. curious about what they're sitting on. Yeah. Lindsey Graham was also hacked. Mm-hmm. And I don't. And Lindsey Graham did a, a bout face right. and is like a lapdog to President Trump That's in a way true. that is shocking given what he was saying during the election. So right. I'm and very curious what we're going to learn about his email server. I'll tell you what. Or maybe nothing because, you know, and I don't know what the, well, actually I do, you you know, I speculate that, you know, well, it could be for Lindsey Graham, that may be part of it. I wonder, you know, I I wonder if there are Republicans who have been hacked like Lindsey Graham. And he himself said, I've been hacked by the Russians. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there have been others, you know, I wonder if that doesn't weigh on them. I mean, how could it not? I mean, there, there's, there are none of us who don't have personal emails that we would prefer not for whatever reason, even if there's no, no wrongdoing there, they're just personal. We would prefer not to be in the public space. Mm-hmm. You know, are there, if Lindsey Graham was hacked, you know, there were probably others mm-hmm. and other Republicans. And, and I don't think we can, we would be foolish and in denial to ignore the possibility of that having an impact. Yeah. But the other part of it is simply, and Lindsey Graham said this, it, you know, I was so disappointed to read this in the New York Times. He was interviewed and he was asked about his about face on Trump. And he said, well, look, if, if you don't want to get reelected in, in this business, you're in the wrong business. But, oh. but I think this is a situation where Lindsey Graham himself does not understand the business he's in. The business he's in it comes with a requirement and an oath, which he took to uphold the Constitution. Mm-hmm. That's what his job is, not to be reelected. And, you know, yes, he needs to represent his constituents, but he took an oath. He didn't take an oath to represent his constituents. He needs to do that for political reasons. So there is an incentive there, but he took an oath to defend the constitution Mm -hmm. and that he has failed to do. And that, and so many Republicans are right there along with him. 
And yes. and I'll I'll just say we we need a new generation of leaders on the Republican side. I I think we we will get it. We must get it. Um, or the Republican Party, I, I think, in time will will you know become a third party in, in an increasing number of states. It's already well on its way to being that. If it, it already is that in in California, mm. um, but you know there needs to be some significant changes in leadership. I just really want to thank you for all the things you've been willing to say today. It really is a, such a breath of fresh air. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm excited that. A, there's been a real clear acknowledgement of truth and what's dangerous and where the silver linings come. And, you know, B, I'm excited that there are still things that make us all feel hopeful. Yeah. But I do have one last question for you, which mm-hmm. can be personal or about work. It's it's up to you. But the, the podcast is called Work in Progress because mm-hmm. I think we really all are forever. Yeah. And I'm curious what in your life right now feels like a work in progress to you. Well, uh, there are so many ways to answer that. I mean, I definitely, I definitely believe that I, as a person, am a work in progress. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, uh, I believe that my my own belief, and this comes from my my faith too, is that life is is a journey in which you learn and grow and 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 try to become a better human being. And so I, that's certainly the case for me. I mean, my goodness, we'd be here all day if I <laughs> told you all the ways I, I need improvement. There are many. But I, I will say that, you know, I, I never anticipated that this is what I would be doing in life, with my life, work-wise, that I would be in the middle of a fight for democracy in the United States of America. Mm. I thought I might be, maybe I'd do this kind of work overseas at some point, um, but I, I never imagined that this is what my life would be like now. Mm. And so I would I say that because I, I still feel like I'm I'm learning and 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 maybe we all are as a country, but I very much feel like I am learning how to fight this fight in the best way. Yeah. How to unite Americans uh, around our foundational values and the institutions that protect our freedom, you know, how to you know, help lead us to another place, a better place as a country, to a place where once again, we're, you know, aspiring to the more perfect realization of our values here in America, as you referred to earlier, you know, that's a a fight that isn't always easy. And it's, it's difficult when your, your, your opposition in this work is the president of the United States and has the bully pulpit the loudest megaphone of all, mm-hmm. and he is fighting for oppression in the United States and for a dismantling of freedom in America. Mm. You know, it's it's difficult to 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 know how to best do that at times. But you know, that's a work in progress, certainly. And I, you know, I think every day about how you know, am I doing it in the best way? Is there a better way to do it? You know, how can we be more effective? And I don't, I know that I don't have all the answers and that, you know, the answers will come from our working together as Americans on, on this challenge and mm-hmm. rising above it together. But, but that's, I spend a lot of time and I'm not trying to dodge the question by putting it on all of us. <laughs> I spend literally every day thinking about the, that, yeah. how, how best to fight for liberty and justice in America, how best to do whatever I can to have as big of an impact as I can 
in helping us get through this challenge. And, um, you know, I, I hope and pray that, you know, and through trial and error, certainly that, that, that I can continue to learn and, and be better in that regard. And for the sake of the country, I hope we all can. Well said. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editors are Josh Windish and Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.